Hello everybody. This is the second sermon in our series looking at the book Song of Songs. Today we're looking at verse 8 of chapter 2 through to verse 5 of chapter 3. And the title for this sermon is Submission and Waiting. For those of you listening to this who are fortunate enough to be married or to have been married at some point, I wonder if you'd like to think back with me for a few moments. What was the period of your engagement like? How did the proposal go? Did you know it was coming or was it a surprise? How long did the engagement period last? Was it long or short? Was this a period of your relationship that you remember with great fondness or were you glad to get it over with? In what ways did your relationship develop while you were engaged? I'll give you a few moments to think about that while I'll tell the others listening who perhaps have never been through this what my engagement was like. Emily and I got engaged in the January of 2012 and were married in the October of the same year. So this period of our relationship lasted about nine months. For me, that seemed about eight and a half months too long. I loved Emily. I knew I wanted to spend the rest of my life with her. And at times I just could not work out what the delay was all about. At times, I confess, I blamed Emily for being too particular in her plans and preparations for the wedding day. She wanted it to be beautiful and creative with all the right people there. I just wanted to get on with it. What made our engagement particularly difficult was that I had to move out of my house and move in with a family in the church. At that time, Emily had been living in a rented house. In the February of 2012, her tenancy came to an end and she could not renew it. So after much deliberation, she moved into the manse where I lived and worked ready for our married life. And I moved out to live in a child's bedroom for eight months. Now that church family were really good to me. But bear in mind, I'd been living independently for years. Now I was having to fit into their routine. I had a young child playing and making all sorts of noise around me. I also could not relax every evening because when I sat down in the living room, they wanted to talk about church every night. I was exhausted and it was making me particularly tetchy with Emily. At times she was wondering whether she wanted to marry me at all. Yet having said all that, I look back on our engagement and I'm still glad that we had it. For in that time... My desire, my longing for Emily only increased. I resolved to myself that once we were married, I would never let us live long periods apart again. And let's not be bashful. I am a man with all the attendant desires and frustrations. So when Emily and I finally did come together on our wedding night and on our honeymoon, it was really special. And I'm not just talking about the sex. I still remember the simple pleasure that came from waking up in the morning and having Emily's arm wrapped around me. All the trials from those nine months of waiting made the uniting all the sweeter. I wonder what your experiences of engagement were like. As a church, we're currently reading through the lesser known book of Song of Songs. Just in case you did not hear the sermon last week, let me just remind us of what type of book this is. Song of Songs is love poetry from ancient Israel. 
It uses vivid language and colourful metaphor to conjure up the story of a couple in love. By doing so, it helps us to celebrate romance and commitment, but it also helps us to reflect. The Song of Songs comes from the wisdom section of the Old Testament. That means it is poetry with a point. It's trying to give us very honest and very practical guidance on how to conduct our relationships today. I felt that many of our relationships have been under such pressure during lockdown, it might be timely for us to read this book together. For you just cannot read Song of Songs without wanting to inject some of this couple's passion for one another into our own love lives. That said, I'm aware that there are people listening to this who are not married, or have been bereaved or separated from their lover. I'm conscious that this book could seem quite a painful read for you. But I want to encourage us that whether we're in a relationship with another or not, God wants to have a relationship with us through Jesus. Of course, that's not a romantic or an erotic love, but there are many principles in Song of Songs that help us to understand our relationship with God better and even encourage us to deepen it. So each week as we journey through the song, we're following a clear structure. We begin by exploring the text, making sure we understand the story being told. Then we look for the practical wisdom contained within it that will help our relationships today. Finally, we draw one key principle from the passage that will help us in our relationship with the Lord, whether we are married or not. In this way, I hope there'll be something for everyone as we look at this great song. This then is week two in the Song of Songs, so we need to briefly recap where we've got in the story so far. Last week, we were whipped up into the whirlwind that is young love. Sights and senses, emotions and feelings ran riot in the opening chapter. A young woman was deeply attracted to a young man. Her head and her heart were full of him. There was no room or time for anything else. However, at first, she was very tentative. She did not know how to express her feelings or make a move with the relationship. She felt very insecure. Slowly but surely, though, her close friends began encouraging and advising her. As a result, she began to meet up with him. Conversation opened up. Compliments started going back and forth and an intimacy began to grow. Soon they were being seen together. There was the holding of hands and physical contact. As a result, the young woman began to grow more and more in confidence and the young man seemed very proud of her. The wisdom we took from all of this was that for love to grow, you need the seedbed of commitment. It is security that human beings crave the most. And when we have it, we are released to experience all the sensual delights of love as God made them to be enjoyed. All these compliments and embraces were not just foreplay in an urgent rush to the bedroom. This intimacy was never an end in itself. Song of Songs presents intimacy as the way real commitment is built. Marriage is the consummation of love, not sex. As a result, the key principle we dwelt on last week was the security God wants us to know in his love for us. 
He's always with us, will never forsake us, and is constantly working for our good. In God, we find the firm ground that we need as we travel through the upheaval of a pandemic. So now we've got up to speed, let's delve into this week's reading. This next section of the song, which begins at verse 8 of chapter 2 and goes through to verse 5 of chapter 3, continues the celebration of commitment as the couple get betrothed. The poetry begins in verses 8 to 13 with the woman reminiscing on her lover asking for a hand in marriage. She repeats word for word his seductive invitation, not just once, but twice. Verse 10, arise my darling, my beautiful one, come with me. And again in verse 13, arise, come my darling, my beautiful one, come with me. We find out that the woman is still living in her parents' house. And this is him asking her to leave her parents and to cleave with him. It's springtime after all, the time for something new to begin. This pattern of leaving mum and dad and taking up with a spouse is the pattern God laid out for marriage right back in Genesis 2, where it says, a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. The reality is that there has to be a cutting of ties before new ones can be made. And as we shall see in a moment, that does produce a little anxiety. In verses 14 to 15, the poetry moves on and gives the perspective of the young man. He has clearly fallen deeply for this young woman. In these verses, he pledges his love to her by again expressing his desires. He wants to gaze into her eyes and see her full beauty. He wants to linger over the sweet contours of her face. Now, this is something that is very difficult to do while the young woman is still being chaperoned by her parents. So he invites his love to leave home and come and share her life with him. She is his dove and he wants her to come out of the clefts in the rock that prevent him getting too close and truly spread her wings. It really is beautiful poetry. In verse 15, he then counsels her not to let her anxieties about leaving home and parents to stop her getting married. Don't let the foxes of fear ruin the beautiful thing that we have. Our love will conquer all these little obstacles you'll see. As a result of this encouragement in verse 16, she gives her response to him. The promise is accepted and sealed. Listen to these words because they're really important. My beloved is mine and I am his. My beloved is mine and I am his. Notice how symmetrical that is. The lovers mutually submit to one another. They mutually belong to one another. There's no upper hand here. There is sacrifice and giving on both sides. This again is the Song of Songs pointing to the consummation of love as being true togetherness, fellowship with one another. In a loving marriage, you want to give yourself to the other. You give not just because you want them, but because they want you. You give yourself because it's what they want and need, not just because you get something in return. Both sides in a marriage 
are privileged to be in love. Both sides in a marriage are responsible for the love that they give. It is a beautiful, life-affirming, value-enhancing equality. Song of Songs wants us to know that the consummation of love is marriage, not sex. And marriage is based on the radical submission of both husband and wife to each other. My beloved is mine and I am his. But that now said, just notice what happens next. In verse 17, the woman sends her lover away. Her stag is to leave her and return to roaming on the hills for a while. She wants her lover. She wants him deeply and fully, but not yet. The time is still not right. This is just the betrothal, not the wedding. A period of waiting must now begin. What I love about the wisdom books in the Bible is that they're so true to life. They're down to earth and written for the salt of the earth. And we now get a prime example of this. In verses one to five of chapter three, we get a vivid description of the period of engagement. And it's not a bed of roses. Rather, it's in a period of impatient waiting, full of frustration and longing. Just listen to her. All night long on my bed, I look for the one my heart loves. I looked for him, but did not find him. She longs for her lover. She yearns for his presence, for his body to be wrapped up with hers. But currently, she is separated from him. And this separation brings all her old securities from chapter one rushing back to the surface. When she finally does get to sleep, she dreams. In her dream, she is scouring the city, searching high and low for her lover, asking every passerby that she meets whether they have seen him. Late into the night, the watchmen of her dream find her and question, what is she up to? And she speaks words full of panic. Have you seen the one my heart loves? We're going to talk in a moment about how absence makes the heart grow fonder. But we're not to take that as an overly simplistic platitude. Absence also gives way to the fear of loss, to insecurity, and yes, sometimes even to jealousy. Where is her lover? Where has he gone? What is he doing? There is no hint of impropriety whatsoever, but these are her longings on her lonely bed at night. They have pledged to share their lives together, but they just can't do it yet. The waiting is hard. It is really hard. And as I experienced firsthand from my period of engagement, we're often not very good at it. But sometimes, wait, we must. Mercifully, the heights of panic for the young woman soon passed. Maybe she is jolted awake by her nightmare before returning to a more peaceful slumber. Whatever happened, in verse 4, better dreams return. Now she is dreaming of her wedding day, the day when her lover comes to collect her from her parents' home for the final time. This time she will not send him away to roam the hills alone once more. On the wedding day she will hold on and never let go. 
This section of the song then finishes with the same poetic phrase we met last week. Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you by the gazelles and by the does of the field, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. In other words, difficult though the waiting of engagement is, it is good and it has purpose. It teaches us that romance is not given to us by God just to lead to bed. It is designed to lead us to commitment. Through the period of betrothal, she has grown so much closer to her man her sex has not come into it. In fact, the wisdom of the song is showing us that premature sexual expression would hinder the work that needs to go on between lovers during this period in their relationship. Let's now turn to explore some of that wisdom. Now that we understand the poetry a little better, I'm sure many of us are relating to this passage. We remember the passion of young love. We remember the excitement of engagement. But if we're honest, we also remember that that period of engagement was truly difficult at times. By that stage, you're longing to be together, longing to bring your lover home with you. It's hard to send them away, as the young woman did in this song. As a minister, I counsel all couples not to plan for a long engagement, because eventually the waiting can get too much. The temptation to rush and arouse love before it desires is just too hard to resist. The reality is many couples in our world today find waiting so difficult they barely even try. The vast majority have moved in together way before they are married. Often they will say it so they can save for their wedding or save for a deposit on their house. But really the truth is that the waiting is just hard. So why should we bother? What do we miss if we do not wait for sex within marriage? Well, we miss the sweetness of building desire and longing for one another. True appreciation really does come with waiting. God's design for love is the opposite to the instant gratification culture we live in. We live in a world of, I want it now for myself. Love is not about just what you get for yourself. It's about what you give. Delayed gratification really is better than instant gratification because it teaches us something. The frustration does something within us. On the one hand, the waiting seals the longings of love. It will ensure love lasts longer and runs deeper. Building the anticipation really does heighten the joy of the eventual consummation. Once you finally do come together, you truly value it and never want to let go. On the other hand, the pain of waiting teaches us as human beings that we are no longer complete on our own. In my experience of engagement, I had to surrender my independence. Okay, for me, that came in an extreme way of moving from my own home to live with another family. But there is a truth here for us all. As we lie awake at night longing for the presence of our lover, we realise that we need them. We can no longer be selfish and self-assured because we're ultimately unhappy like that. We can no longer be a lone ranger. We're much stronger as a couple. 
The pain of waiting stops us being independent and makes us interdependent with our lover. It fosters the commitment needed to last a lifetime together. This is why a period of waiting is so important before marriage. The frustration of engagement works on our hearts and minds. It's God's way of preparing us properly for our beloved. We would do well to follow God's design for romantic relationships and to encourage those in our families and friends in this position to do the same. Waiting helps us to truly submit to one another. Waiting is then very wise advice. Now I'm conscious that not much of what has been said so far is very relevant to many of us. Most of us listening to this either are married or are not looking to get engaged. So what is the key principle we can take from this that relates to the relationship that we do have with God? Well, in a way, we are all betrothed to God and waiting for him to arrive in person like the young woman in the song. The Bible contains many repetitions of a wording very similar to chapter 216, where the woman said, my beloved is mine and I am his. We read one of them at the start of this service, Psalm 95, 7, where it said, for he is our God and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. That comes again and again in the Bible. He is our God. We are his people. It's a statement of betrothal. God is committed to us deeply and irrevocably, so committed he sent Jesus to die and save us. In response, we have committed to him. We have chosen to submit to his ways and to love him as his people. This is the position of a Christian. We're in a covenant relationship with the Lord. But intrinsic to this is the sense that we are still waiting We still do not see Jesus. And in our troublesome and frightening world, we yearn and long for his appearance. The Bible is very honest. Waiting for Christ's second coming is not easy. The Apostle Paul even spoke of us and the world groaning while we wait in Romans 8. The book of Revelation finishes with the heartfelt pleas of, Come, Lord Jesus, come! This is what we want. This is what we need. We're eager for Jesus to come. The Bible also speaks of the temptations that come as we wait. In 1 Corinthians 1 and Titus 2, Paul urged his readers to live godly and blameless lives, that they will be ready for Christ's return in much the same way that a husband and wife strive to keep themselves pure for their wedding day. Fortunately, though, Paul did recognise that forgiveness was on offer if mistakes had been made along the way. We are then, each and every one of us, waiting for a consummation just as the young woman was in the song. How might this passage help us then in our wait? Well, by reminding us that there is a point to all of this. God has a plan and he knows what he's doing. As we wait, he's giving time for as many people to turn to him as possible. As we wait, we're learning to depend on him for everything in our lives rather than being self-important. And ultimately, by waiting, we are ensuring that on the day when we do finally see Christ face to face, our joy will abound.
and never diminish. Let me finish with some great verses that speak of the fulfilment that will come when our waiting is over. First from Philippians 3, 20 to 21. Our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so they'll be like his glorious body. And 2 Peter 3, 11 to 13. You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. A new heaven and a new earth, a new body that will last forever, an eternity in God's presence. Truly the wait will be made worth it. And in the meantime, God will have worked so much good in us and in the world. Let us then trust God's great promises of love and choose to submit to him through these troubling days of our waiting.